2: Hey, I'm Alexis Madrigal.
3: And I'm Mina Kim. And this is Forum and Focus, a show where we bring you the week's most compelling conversations recorded live on our radio show Forum on KQED in San Francisco.
2: Mina, you are doing something a little different this week.
3: Yeah. Basically, my guest um, was Brooke Mini kalamaki of the New York Times, who had done this piece um, about her experience shadowing a woman who lived out of her car with her college age daughter in Kirkland, Washington, just outside of Seattle. And, uh, you know, we invited listeners if they themselves live out of their vehicles and wanted to share their experiences. We got a call from this guy named Paul who is basically living out of his car at the age of 70, and Uh. he was talking about how he didn't expect to be at this place when he was in his 70s, right? And how he doesn't feel like there is... A lot of recognition of the fact that the unhoused population is graying in this way and needs a lot of support, different kinds of support. And the other thing that he said at the very end of his call was that it doesn't define him. His existence as an unhoused person in a car doesn't define who he is as a person. And that's kind of how he keeps it together mentally. So really Mm. intimate and revealing. So good. Um, what about you, Alexis? Yeah, what are I'm you sorry, talking
2: about? Mina, um, you know, so much of what we're dealing with in cities does kind of come down to a kind of crumbling of both social and actual infrastructure. <laughs> and the guest that uh, you're going to hear today is Deb Chatra. She's you know an Olin College professor. Um, she's an engineer, and she wrote this new book, How Infrastructure Works. And I love when we can give people kind of a new way of seeing the world. And Deb is someone whose work I've followed you know, for years and years. Um, and she developed a worldview over all this time as an engineer that infrastructure isn't just kind of like metal and concrete stuff, it's actually an expression of our collective care mm. as a society. And yeah. that kind of flips it into this whole other part of my brain where I'm like, oh right, Like when we provide clean water for everyone, that's an act of care and maintenance for like the whole community, right? It's not just about, you know, uh, the flow rates or whatever, or the, you know, osmosis. It's like, it's actually, you know, part of our social fabric too.
3: Yeah, that's so beautiful. Well, let's hear that conversation, Alexis.
2: Deb Chatra on how infrastructure works. How Infrastructure Works is a new book by Deb Chatra, an engineering professor. It's an attempt to create a whole theory of infrastructure, from the social values that allow it to be imagined to the elegance of a structure through the details of its implementation and maintenance. We all know from driving on our roads around the Bay Area and from the yearly reports that the country's civil engineers put out, that our infrastructure is falling apart in many places. For one, it's old. Two, all levels of government have deferred maintenance on it. And three, the infrastructure was built for a world that has changed and will continue to do so because of global warming. Yet this book is in the category of love letter in the way a naturalist book is a love letter to nature. But Chatra's message is more complex as we enter the uncertain middle age of the great infrastructural takeoff that fossil fuels enabled. She makes the case that infrastructure is deeply important, that it is the very linchpin of a future that is not dystopian, and also that we need to rethink the kinds of infrastructure we build and the values we embody in it. Chatra joins us this morning. Thanks so much for coming on, Deb.
4: I'm so happy to be here today, Alexis.
2: So, just for, for people who don't think about it as often as you do, what makes infrastructure infrastructure? Like, how do you define it?
4: Well, there are many academic papers that go into length, but <laughs> for our purposes, I like to think of it as um, I specifically focused on technological systems. You said I'm an engineering professor. So, we're not thinking about sort of money or the legal system or healthcare, any of those things. Mm-hmm. But the thing that these systems, so sewage, water, electricity, transportation, telecommunications, have in common with things like money and the legal system in terms of being infrastructure is that they're the things that we just take for granted as being there when we start something new. So, you know, I I teach engineering students, and they don't think about, is there going to be electricity to run the thing that they're doing? Just like if you're starting a business, you know that there's a legal system and a monetary system. In place, mm-hmm. so it's all the things that we take for granted, and as we're all finding out, we only take it for granted when it works well,
2: yeah, I love that. I mean, just rough and ready definition. it's the stuff you don't think about you, know? yeah. um, uh, you grew up around infrastructure, noticing it in perhaps ways that not every
4: kid does. like why do you think that is? <laughs> uh, I was a I was a somewhat nerdy child, which <laughs> was part of it. um but I was really helped by two things. so one is, My parents were emigrants to Canada from India, and they came at the end of the the 1960s. I was born at the start of the 70s, and it was really a moment of deep care for building out new infrastructural systems in Canada. Mm -hmm. And my father, in fact, worked for the public power utility, so I had sort of proximity to some of these things, including my local, local nuclear power plant. But my nuclear power plant had a visitor center. It was very deliberately designed to be open, you know, for people to come and visit. But the other piece of it, I said they emigrated from India, was spending time in India. And, you know, you said the rough-and-ready definition of infrastructure is all the stuff we don't think about. That's also true of culture, right? It's all Mm. the things we do and we don't think about it. So when my family went home, went to India to visit Um, my parent family and stay there, I had very different infrastructural systems than I did in Canada. So, you know, typically we would have water for an hour a day um, in the morning and an hour in the evening. We would pretty much expect to have brownouts in the afternoon. So all of those things made the sort of infrastructure that I took for granted as a small child growing up in Canada visible in a way that it would not otherwise have been if I'd only seen one system or the other. Well, and I think
2: you also read the gendered nature of the labor that infrastructure was doing for you in a in a really interesting way too, right? Because you were looking at this world and saying, "Oh man, if this water doesn't just come on when I turn the tap, then someone's going to do that," and in many places that task has fallen to him.
4: Yeah, pretty much. You know, globally, I have a colleague Ben Linder who works in um, uh, who works in the Global South doing sort of design um, and appropriate technology. And I remember him saying to me, like, yeah, globally, most people, particularly women, spend every day getting fuel for cooking. And it's Mm. like it's just part of your daily life. And the realization, of course, that, you know, I sort of say I'm a middle-aged brown woman. And pretty much everyone on the planet or the large majority of people on the planet who look like me, that's what their day is, getting fuel for cooking and getting clean water for their families. Mm. Mm. And it's a thing that I literally never spend you know, more than a few minutes thinking about every day. It's just Mm -hmm. those things are just on tap for me. Um, And that really drove home the idea that how much infrastructure replaces gendered labor. Yeah. And
2: that feeling, I mean, I guess I think I want to call it gratitude, maybe? Um, (laughs) It intersects also with these concepts of sort of elegance and technical efficiency and, you know, what you call the charismatic megastructure. These things that I, you know, associate more with kind of like awe and the sublime and and things like that.
4: Um, So one of the ways in which I really think about this is that my individual agency, my ability to basically decide what I want to do on a daily basis and to do things like write a book or, you know, hang out with my friends, um, are all made possible by the presence of these collective systems. So um so that's really kind of where the intersection comes into play because that's true when it's just like oh I'm just going to turn the tap to get water and not have to worry about bringing the water to my house and it's just as true when we see something like a giant megastructure which is very clearly a collective project and for collective use so that really is at the very small very quotidian level that really is the intersection with these charismatic mm. megastructures mm.
2: You know, one of the stories that's embedded in this book is Deb Chatra wandering around the world, seeing infrastructure, going to visit it. Um, and I was wanting you to give us kind of some insight into, like, how does one orient oneself to seeing the infrastructure that's around? Like, when you go to a new place and you start looking around, you know, San Francisco or whatever, a place, how do you start seeing the stuff that other people don't?
5: Um.
4: First of all, a lot, I mean, it's just there, right? Like, it's actually, (laughs) there's probably very few moments in our lives, if you live in San Francisco or here in the Northeast, that there isn't some sort of node or interface to an infrastructural system, and often many, in your eye line at any moment, right? That could be power switches or outlets, that could be lights, that could be looking at the window and seeing a road that's, you know, water. And so walking down the street... Very commonly, I will. I will. People, people who have walked down the street with me will notice that I will like stop and look at small things, um, and that might be a marker in the ground. That might be signage. Um, I'm, I'm of course like many of us. I notice when cell phone towers are disguised as trees.
2: Oh yes, I love right? that line in the book. Right, the um, only towers you see are the
4: ones that are like <laughs> fake trees. Yeah. Um, but but broadly, and uh, humans tend to. We're we're really good at not seeing things that either we see all the time or that we don't really know what they're for, right? We can just, you know, kind of gloss over them. And so a huge amount of it is just once I kind of know how things work and I know that they're there, then I see them in the world. And um, the, the, the naturalist, Helen MacDonald, who's a friend of mine, talks about the green blur, that if you haven't looked closely at the natural environment— you will tend to see, you know, a monoculture like a, a a um a yeah. golf course that's just g- like grass will look not that different from a wildflower meadow, right? That is both just kind of green and vaguely grassy. But <laughs> once you kind of know something about the flowers of the plant in the meadow, then it goes from being a green blur to this sort of deep specificity. Then you don't just see it as a green blur anymore. And I, I think that by virtue of that noticing, right, that sustained attention, the gray blur of our built environment, the gray blur of our infrastructure is no longer that. Now it's more like a wildfire, that wildflower meadow to me. And I hope to the, the people who are walking down the street with me when I stop and look at things. Um, and now I hope the people who read um, the book and other writings.
2: I love this. You see it everywhere. And sometimes those things um, are are things we maybe have seen many times. We're going to listen into a sound here, and then we're going to talk about that sound. Maybe you can guess what it is, listeners mm. out there. You may have seen it at the Ferry Building, everyone. Um, right, this is the Solari board, right, That is that used to be a, a common feature of many... Uh, railway depots, right?
4: Yeah, they, um, I, you know, I feel like I, over the course of my lifetime, I feel like I've seen them being replaced with <laughs> LCD displays. And I, I understand why, right? Like, LCD displays can carry all sorts of information. They can carry signage. They're bright. But man, I love Solari boards. And I was oh, yeah. so, so delighted that they installed one in the Ferry building. Um, and honestly, one of my favorite things about it is that you can hear when it changes, Mm-hmm. So you can be, you know, like, wandering around the fairy building and getting a snack, and, and then you'll hear the salary board, and it's like, oh, something has changed, now I need to pay attention. Yeah. And it's just, I find that so lovely, and I just love the sound. And, oh, I
2: do too. Yeah. yeah. Like little, the footsteps of infrastructure. Absolutely. <laughs> I and mean, yeah. the other thing is too, right, it's tied into all these systems that are required to bring together, like the informational networks that let you know when something's coming, the resilience of the ferries, you know, that they provide for our, our land transport. It is tied to all these other systems, right?
4: Yeah, and that is broadly true of infrastructure in general, right, that every system is dependent on and tied to every other system, pretty much. And electricity is kind of the most obvious one, right, that water pumps don't work without electricity. Transportation is another obvious one. But to a really, you know, to a very high degree, all of these networks, all of these utilities that we just take for granted – make all the other ones work, that Mm. they're really kind of um, deeply intersecting, deeply entangled. And of course, you know, we understand that deeply when when things fail or, um, you know, actually here, one of my first favorite examples is when first responders go out to do things like deal with wildfires, CalDOT needs to get there first to make sure that the roads are Mm. safe to to be driven on. And I sort of think of them as zeroth responders, which is a very Uh, math joke, right? That before the first responders can do their job, you know, these networks need to be in place. There's a lot more we couldn't get
2: to. You can go check out my full conversation with Professor Chatra on your favorite podcast app. Just search KQED Forum Chatra. That's C-H-A-C-H-R-A.
3: And don't go anywhere. Forum and Focus will be back in a minute. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. For her story, I Live in My Car, New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki spoke with dozens of people who resorted to living in their vehicles and the people trying to help them. Kalamaki provides an intimate look at daily life for one of the fastest-growing segments of the unhoused population, people experiencing what's been called vehicular homelessness. Kalamaki found that many she spoke with, including in California, Colorado, and Washington state— are caught in what she calls an unforgiving middle, where they earn too little to afford rent, but can afford a car. Rukmini Kalamaki joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Rukmini. Thank you for having me. So you spoke with many people across several states, but one person that you spent three days with was a woman who lived in Kirkland, Washington, near Seattle. Crystal, can you tell us about her, how she was living when you met her?
6: Yes, Crystal Adet is not what comes to mind when you think of a homeless person. Crystal is college educated, and she's actually employed by the state of Washington and is earning $72,000 a year. Yet even so, she found herself unable to pay rent in what is one of the most expensive housing markets in the country. And starting uh, this spring, she began living out of her
3: car. And how was she making her car work? Because it wasn't just her. She was also living with her college-age daughter, right?
6: Yeah, it was it was her and her daughter and their dog. And they joked that the front passenger seat was her daughter's quote unquote bedroom, and the back seat was her bedroom. Um, she kept one of the doors of the Ford Fusion ajar at night so that she could partially Stretch out her legs, and her daughter uh, leaned the back, the 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 passenger seat as far back as she could, and then put a comforter in the crack in the seat to make it a little bit more level. Obviously, it's a very uncomfortable way to sleep, um, and and a very uncomfortable way to live.
3: Yeah, you described the roof of their car as their dining table, the trunk as their closet. You also had this line where you said there are so many ways in which a person's life becomes smaller when they are forced to fit a home into a car. Can you talk about that, how their life got smaller, all the ways that they try to limit their needs almost?
6: That's right. You don't don't think of all of the ways in which if you're forced to live in a car, your your daily habits have to change. The most major one for Crystal is that she wasn't able to allow herself to drink as much water as she wanted to because otherwise she would have had to go to the bathroom and the bathroom where she was was a porta potty. So she stopped drinking enough water and the result was that she got dehydrated. Because she wasn't able to fully stretch out, um, in the summer her, her, her legs and her ankles began to swell, almost like she was pregnant. Um, she told me that she wasn't able to fit into her tennis shoes at one point. Uh, and it also means that you don't have a kitchen. So she and her daughter were, were resorting to fast food meals. It's not a very healthy way to be. And that resulted in, in, in other problems.
3: Yeah. Well, we've got calls coming in and let me start with Paul in San Francisco. Paul, you're on. Thank you. Good
7: morning to all. And thank you for this show. Uh, I'm a 70 year old in citizen and I live in my car. I've been doing this on and off since 2010 and I've been employed. But the one thing I noticed missing from this conversation, generally speaking, when I Not this particular one, but the mention of senior citizens. Mm. Uh, there are services available, but the waiting list, I'll put it this way. I left Los Angeles in 2017, and this is 2023, and I've not heard from a single agency. Uh, the wait list is astronomical. The services don't work. There's no one to guide you. You bump your head a lot. You miss a lot of things. Uh, it's a terrible situation to face at this age when you've done all the right things. I have a college degree. Um, It's interesting. The one thing I do keep in mind, though, this is what's happening to me and it does not define me. And that is what keeps my head together most of the time.
3: (laughs) Well. Well, Paul, thank you so much for calling in and sharing your story. I'm sorry to hear that you have not been getting the kind of outreach that you need and the support that you need. Let me go next to caller Andrew in San Jose. Andrew, you're on.
8: Hi there. Yeah, I, my comment was just that uh, I was a I'm a combat veteran from the 2003 Iraq War, and I ended up living in my car in a 1993 Ford Explorer. And I uh, one thing I'd like to point out is that my in my experience, um, I did whatever I could to hide the fact that I was homeless from people. So I couldn't afford rent. I couldn't afford most of my bills. The only thing I kept was uh, my my payment on my iPhone so I could participate on Facebook and, like, you know, like, become, you know, pre- have the perception of a member of society. I, you know, incidentally also donated to KQD. Uh But uh, oh it, was, it was rough. <laughs> but, like, I could tell you that uh, um, 10 years later somehow – you know, through friends and you know, like just hard work, I was able to you know get back up and um, you know bu- ended up being able to buy a home. Uh, but it's not easy to get a job without a address is not easy. But um, to my to my first point, like what I'd like to say is that most you know people have this stereotype about homeless people, like they're they're different. They're, scary they're maybe on drugs or have mental problems but like it's uh most people who are unhoused you're not going to notice them because they're just you know people with families. sometimes people with but a lot of times people with jobs or multiple jobs and you know it's embarrassing to look homeless so most people don't you know they do what they can to avoid that perception so that's all I want to say.
3: Oh, Andrew, it means a lot. Everything that you shared and that you're sharing this story so much. and I... Real,
8: They're regular people. I mean, we are all, there's only us, there's no them. You know?
3: <laughs> well, this listener thinks Andrew is amazing. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story, Andrew. Um, let me go to Terrence in San Francisco. Terrence, you're on. Hi.
1: Um, so I work in a major bank here in San Francisco. And I just so happened to be listening to you guys' programming. By the way, I love you guys' programming. Um, So a few weeks ago, a guy walked into the branch that I've seen all the time. He's always friendly. He's always nice. And we had to close his account because he didn't have a physical address. He was using his P.O. box. And this guy would come in all the time. I think he even had a credit score above 750 or something like that. But we had to close his account because he didn't have a physical address because of the uh, something called the Bank Secrecy Act that was passed in the 70s. And then the Patriot Act that was passed, I guess, more so recently since 9-11. But this guy was the sweetest guy and he worked. He had regular uh, direct deposits from his job. But we had to close his account and there was nothing I could do about it because it's so far above my pay grade. You know, oh, my God. But. I was so I felt so bad for the guy, and he told me that he used to live in his car. That's why he got a P.O. box. And hearing this program lets me know that there are many more people out there just like him who probably use a P.O. box so that they can get a job and everything. But I'm really worried now because he was such a good customer. He's a good client. He's a good person that you want to have as a bank to be banking with you. He made all of his payments on time. He did everything he was supposed to do. I just felt so bad. There was nothing I could do. So if the guy is out there, if he ever listens to NPR, keep going. I saw your savings account. I saw you saving up. I saw you kept going more and more to get, you know, out of that situation. So more power to you. I'm so sorry this is happening to all these people. So, you know, my prayers and thoughts really go out to people in that situation.
3: Oh, Terrence, I, I hope that that person is listening. You know, Rukmini, how did Crystal manage to eventually find permanent housing?
6: yeah so I, I I went to Kirkland Washington in August to shadow Crystal and I spent several days with her and the period when I was there coincided with a big event inside the church um and I um, I had been asked by the organizers of uh, of the church to always identify myself as a as a times reporter so that other people who were homeless and showing up at the event would not be, you know, accidentally interviewed by me. So I was very obvious as a New York Times reporter. I had my badge around my neck. Um, uh, The Times photographer was with us. And this brought a lot of attention to Crystal. Um, Suddenly housing advocates that were there took notice of her and they began speaking to her. Several gave their cards and those conversations um, led to her eventually finding her own apartment and the church paying Uh, the down payment that she needed to pay. I think she is now, I don't know if she's fully allowed herself to, um, you know, accept that she's off the streets now. She was telling me that um, just yesterday or the day before she said, I have finally allowed myself to buy some groceries. She was buying, even though she was in an apartment, she was buying just a little bit of food every day, still worried about, you know, is she going to end up back on the streets? so I think she's still very much feeling unsure and insecure, but I'm very, very happy to see that
3: she's got a roof over her head. My conversation with New York Times reporter Rukmini Kalamaki and with listeners about what it's like to be unhoused and living out of a car. You can hear so much more on the full episode. Just search KQED Forum and Cars on your favorite podcast app.
2: Oh, man, that's powerful stuff. And that's all for Forum in Focus. This week's most compelling conversations in under 30 minutes. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.